You know that question, like, when did you know you were a woman? I wonder if we can do that with the version of when did you know you were an environmentalist? Do you have a moment, Melody, that stands out? You know, it's really funny. I grew up doing all of these things that now we consider to be environmentalist actions, but at the time were just things that my mom really ingrained in me and I actually thought were really annoying. (laughs) It was like saving every bit of wrapping paper to reuse it or making sure that every piece of plastic recycling was like completely cleaned out. And I have this really vivid memory from years ago. My mom made these handmade signs that she actually taped on our cars that said stop logging in Robinson State Park, which was this park that my house backs up into. And I totally agreed with her, but we also made fun of her because she was so outrageous and she can't ever just do something like halfway. She's got to go way over the top. There were the things that she kind of harped on and we always like just thought she was kind of crazy, but they're the things that I still do to this day and get really riled up when other people don't do them now. So I guess I've sort of turned into my mother in that way, which is a little bit terrifying, but also really helpful because it set the stage for me to be really conscious of my own environmental impact, even if I wouldn't have called it that at the time. I mean, I aspire to be the crazy lady with things in my car, well, ideally not a car, on my bicycle, telling people what to do about the planet. But I remember there was this statistic that Louisiana loses a football field worth of coastline every hour. And it just terrified me. Honestly, like, I don't know how I even had friends in middle school because it's Louisiana. Eli Manning went to my high school. Uh, For anyone who follows sports, he's a big football player, which obviously all the sports followers will know that and think I'm an idiot. But anyhow, point is, football is a big thing in Louisiana. And I decided that it was a good idea to, like, cover up part of the football field to show how much coastline we lose to erosion. It was this like idea I had for a protest. And I do remember kids like running up to trees and hugging them and being like, who am I? I'm Erin. And I'm like, you know, I'm really proud of myself. I feel like all the things we were made fun of for as kids are now like the cool thing to be. If only we had had that foresight then. We should have known each other in middle school. We could have been ostracized together. (laughs) We found each other now. I'm Melody Serafino. And I'm Erin Allweiss. And we're the co-founders of Number 29, an agency that focuses on sustainability, design, and advancing social change. This is the Enough Podcast. This week, we know we have more than enough community wisdom to really shape what sustainability looks like. And we've had enough of those stories not being told. So I don't think that I ever had that sort of light bulb moment of saying I'm an environmentalist, but I think I do have this really transformative moment where when I was 14 years old, I got to go on a trip with my high school to Tanzania. It was really a pure educational trip, but I think it changed so much of my thinking and understanding of how other people in other parts of the world live. And this like predates the internet. So we didn't have the same access to that kind of information. We're aging ourselves. We're geriatric millennials. <laughs> so it felt so transformative seeing how other people live with nature and how integral that is to their lives, where sometimes I think we here in the U.S. feel so separated from it. It's like if we want nature, we have to go and find nature. And I think going other places, you really see how the natural world and the environment impacts their livelihood in a way that we take for granted. Yeah. I think also I love nature, but I don't love this idea of just protecting nature for nature's sake. 
Because I think that that's where environmentalists so often go wrong. Like for me, it's not about protecting the caribou. Yeah, I like caribou, but human beings, we're ultimately doing this for people and the people who are disproportionately affected are often those with the least amount of access. And again, I think about Southern communities where I grew up and it was those living in neighborhoods close to the Mississippi where chemicals were dumped into the Mississippi River dioxin causing cancer. So like the direct impacts of what we do to the planet and how that's affecting our health, our livelihoods. I think we got it wrong for so long and it's nice to see now like we are starting to make those connections. Erin, I'm really glad that you brought up this idea of not protecting the environment just for the sake of protecting the environment because our guest today actually talks about how the environment and communities are so interwoven and how we can't think of them as separate. So our guest today is Esha Shabra, who is a longtime journalist who has been writing at the intersection of sustainability and business and environment and local communities. And she's seen firsthand visually the destruction that our negative impact on the environment can have on communities, whether it's harmful dyes running in rivers in India or farmers who have had to move their farms because of drought or changing temperatures. And so I think she's really poised to tell those deeper environmental stories and really understand how all of these things are interconnected. Yeah. I think what's also so interesting about Esha too is the fact that she's created a company based on the values that she's seen as a journalist. She has a tea company that works with local farmers to make sure that they're farms that are good to the planet and the people. And I love that she's doing this work as a side project. I don't know how she finds time for it. I also feel so lucky that Esha came into our lives through the work that she does reporting on these topics and going to the Amazon with Esha because she's now editing our website enough that we're launching in a little over a week. And she's going to be focusing on the exact kind of stories that we want to tell about people who are solving these environmental and social impact problems. Yeah, I love that about Esha. And it's been really incredible working with her on this project because she speaks to these issues from so many perspectives, whether it's as a small business owner herself through her reporting or reflecting on her own personal journey. How did I come into this world? Um, Purely by coincidence, to be honest. I was given a fellowship through Rotary International when I was a grad student at the London School of Economics. And with the fellowship was this criteria that you would go do some humanitarian work at the grassroots level. So it was a really firsthand experience of going to developing countries and spending time in these communities and engaging with health workers and seeing what their challenges were. And, you know, you may think that's far removed from the world of B Corps and sustainability, but really when you're in communities where people don't have running water, they don't have really high daily wages, you see a lot of these issues firsthand. And I think that's part of the reason why I lost any inhibition when it came to talking to social responsibility officers or CSR officers, as they were called in those days. Um, You know, asking them the tough questions of how are you really creating impact on the ground? What exactly is your company doing? How much money is going back? I was born in India. I was born in Delhi. I was raised in the States. But I've always felt like I've lived in both worlds. I've spent a lot of time in the subcontinent traveling and been able to do all that kind of grassroots reporting. And that's really been, I think, for me at the core of everything that I do today. I mean, having that on the ground experience where you actually see how communities are impacted 
allows you or challenges you to ask some of those more pointed questions. Was there a particularly defining moment that made you want to write about sustainability? I think a couple of things. One is my first years as somebody in my early 20s at the time was spent in a state in India called Uttar Pradesh. It's about 300 million people. It is the size of the United States in terms of population in an area that's physically the size of perhaps Colorado and Utah combined. I mean, it's not a massive land area. I was covering public health at the time. But what you start to realize is that it's all interwoven. So if there is no running water, if the streets are being contaminated, the food that people are eating, where are they getting it sourced from? Do they have enough healthy nutrition? What are they getting paid to grow that food? So when you see all of this, I think you start to realize that it's all interwoven. I think you cannot report on sustainability per se, and just focus on the environment, I think you have to look at it as kind of this web that works in its intricate ways. And so you have to look at the environment, how that affects public health, and then that how that affects the quality of life of these people. Because if they thrive and prosper, then the community thrives and the environment around them thrives as well. So I think for me, having that kind of ingrained experience um, in India, doing that kind of reporting and, you know, just being in places like that, whether it was in the state of UP, or then I did a lot of reporting that was up at the base of the Himalayas with these farmer groups. You see women that are working on these small farms that might be five acres or less, and they're there because the men have left for the city to get a better job and to earn more money. And these women are just toiling away at these farms, and they have such incredible indigenous knowledge, but they're kind of fighting the odds. I mean, they're dealing with climate change firsthand. They're seeing erosion. They're seeing excessive rainfall. They're seeing all these crazy weather patterns that they haven't seen in their lifetime. And then I did a lot of reporting as well in textiles in South India, which is a big manufacturing hub for the entire world. Um, You see all of this firsthand when you see the dyes running in the rivers and you see how polluted the local water is and you read the local newspapers and they talk about how a particular city has become, you know, a cancer hub um, and there's so many cancer cases arising because people are being exposed to these pollutants. I think all of that just pushes you that you have to write about something bigger than yourself or bigger than a product or a company. It really has to have a grander purpose. But I also focused on the solutions because I think it became so overwhelming. And I know now people have a term for it and they call it eco-anxiety and they worry about all the various things that we've done to the planet that are terrible. But I think the other thing is that, you know, we have to find the solutions. We have to encourage the solutions. And I was like, how can I do that with my writing? How can I shed light on people that I think are, you know, really incredible human beings and trying to fight against the odds? Yeah, I think that some of these communities are the ones that are most deeply impacted by climate change, as you mentioned. I mean, they're not the ones necessarily creating the negative impact, but they're certainly the ones suffering from it. And I love that you kind of call yourself a solutions journalist, talking and thinking a lot about eco-anxiety and also how information overwhelm can actually prevent action. It can feel a bit paralyzing sometimes when there's so much and you feel like you as an individual can't actually make that meaningful change. How do you manage that? You know, you want to get the story out there, of course, and you want to create that urgency without completely debilitating people in the process. I think it is a real challenge and it brings up a good topic, which is that 
you need to like realize that there is no perfect solution. And I think that will help you tame your ego anxiety. So if you're looking for sort of like the one solution that's going to make you feel like this is going to clean up my carbon footprint or make me a more eco person, I don't think that exists. I don't think you can buy your way into this. There's two things I would say. From a consumer standpoint, this idea of buying less, just being mindful of what you buy. For me, honestly, it's made me realize that the way that my parents' generation grew up in India and lived in India to a certain degree, and my grandparents' generation for sure, that was frankly what we would call sustainable. I mean, people just had, you know, slimmer wardrobes. They had fewer things in their home and they lived within their means and there were fewer financial products available to them to put them into debt, to buy more things that they don't need. It was just a very different approach to life. Um, so I think from a consumer standpoint, we need to just change our mindset. Is it more sustainable for you to go out there and buy from a variety of brands that are selling you conscious collections or eco-friendly clothing? No, like just buy what you need, wear what you need, be mindful of how much stuff you bring into your home. If you have a rayon dress from like 10 years ago and it still fits you, wear it. Like you don't need to get rid of it just because it's rayon, you know? I mean, I think we need to be a little bit more practical about these things. The microplastics is a big problem. I don't have the answers to how we're going to solve that. I don't think the experts have the answers to how we're going to solve that just yet. So I think it's just up to consumers. Do the best that you can. You know, from now on, think about it. Do you really need to be buying a lot of polyester-based clothing. I think about it now. You know, growing up in India, people wore a lot of natural fibers. It was just the primary choice because it's a hot climate. You feel more comfortable in it. I think about that now. But then there are certain things like when you're looking at outdoor wear or you're looking at, you know, winter wear, they have a lot of synthetics in them. It's just the nature of the game. So weigh your options and do the best you can and don't kill yourself for it. I think a big part of where you can also make change happen as a consumer is in really simple things, just voicing them in your community. I mean, a lot of the change that does happen throughout the country has really happened because of local communities coming together and saying, you know, we don't want this or we stand for something else. There's always role for the individual to have small, actionable change in your community, and that is enough. So feel empowered to go out in your community and, you know, voice your opinions on whatever it is you're passionate about, whether it's agriculture, whether it's limiting um, development so you can protect open spaces, whatever it may be. I think about these things on a daily basis. I don't make the perfect choices. You know, sometimes you go to a grocery store and you go shopping and the thing is wrapped in plastic and it pisses me off. But like, what do you do? You know, I might go up to the manager afterwards and be like, guys, could you kindly rethink this? Like, do we really need to wrap the cucumbers in plastic? Um, but I don't think any of us can live a perfect eco-friendly lifestyle. And Recently, now having co-founded a company also and being on the other end of it and seeing all the challenges that come with materials in particular, um, I am very empathetic to companies trying to make these transitions because the ideal solution is just not out there yet, um, especially when it comes to materials. I want to speak about the company that you founded because you have this wonderful tea company and Aaron and I are such huge fans. Can you talk a little bit about why and how you started that? Yeah, of course. So Alea is the tea company. 
Um, you know, the tea company came about in a really organic way, much like how Enough came about on the back of a bus. My co-founder, Smitha Setiani, she works at Google by day. We both have day jobs to be able to sustain this. I was up in San Francisco a few years ago and met her for drinks. We'd been friends for years. And she shared with me this random thought was like, I'd love to have a tea house. And I said to her, I said, no, you don't want a tea house. And, you know, we were just kind of joking about it. But later we kept talking about it and we thought about both of us had worked in the world of impact. And I think this speaks to, you know, what I said earlier, which is sometimes if you've been in these places and you've spent time in these communities that are really being affected the most, sometimes it's not enough to write about it. So Alea came about, we are a loose leaf, organic and biodynamic tea company. We source directly from estates in India and from farms in India that we feel like are really pushing the boundary in terms of regenerative agriculture. And our teas come from biodynamic farms. So biodynamic farming has a lot of the tenets of regenerative agriculture within it. And it's been around for a very long period of time. And the idea with the tea company was really a few things. We grew up in South Asian households. Tea is like such an integral part of who we are. But we realized a lot of our American friends were less aware of, you know, the various nuances of the world of tea. Two, we saw that there was a lot of waste in the world of tea. Incidentally, when we launched last September, there was a BBC story that came out that talked about all the microplastics in tea bags, which, you know, you think about it, you dunking something in hot water and still releasing all this plastic and you're consuming it. And it just feeds into that statistic that's so popular now, which is that we eat a credit card of plastic every week now. Um, so we were like, oh gosh, how do we change consumer behavior to not use tea bags? Will people do loose leaf or is that too much of a jump? So we decided to take on loose leaf tea. And then the last one, which we've spoken about a lot for companies is, you know, trying to make it as eco-friendly of a company as possible. And so we use compostable bags and we have had our bags tested at a municipal compost. We've done it in a backyard compost. And let me tell you, we spent like a year trying to find the right packaging and the right label maker and the inks that are used and the adhesives that are used. And it's a real rabbit hole. And I mean, nothing's ideal because the thing with compostable packaging is that a lot of the bioplastics are made out of materials like corn, for example, especially in North America, which comes with its ups and downs. It's not an ideal crop to be investing in, but at the same time, is it better than plastics? Because it does, you know, actually break down. So, you know, we decided to go with compostable packaging. We are always looking for better solutions out there and inviting people to write to us and send recommendations but that's Alea in a nutshell, and it's a funny way of life working in full circle. I've always been somebody who's been interested in gardening, interested in food. You know, working in local communities in the developing world and spending time there, one thing that I really walked away with was that if you make a commitment to someone, you should make a commitment to them long term. So if you're going to source from them or if you're going to support their farming, it can't be for one season. Like, it's just not going to have the kind of social impact it may make for a great story on our end of things here in the States, but that's not really creating change. And so for me, farmers are like the people in the world that we should be respecting and writing about and they should be on our front pages and they just don't get that attention. And so I've been very humbled and inspired by many of the farmers that I've met all around the world. And so I just thought, what a nice way to give back if we can through this tea company. Feels like a natural extension of all of the things you care about. And now you have the opportunity to do it the way that you want to do it to support farmers and healthy environmental practices, which I think is really cool. And I think long term solutions don't sound sexy to people, but it's what we need to make meaningful change. 
I wonder, are there stories like that you think haven't been told or stories you hope will be told in 2021? I'd love to see more stories that talk about redefining what business models can look like. Underlining a lot of these issues is the fundamental model of business. There's this real excitement around venture-backed companies and you know the initial thrust that they do into the market, whether it's with great PR, great marketing, great product, all of that. But I just worry about the longevity of all of that. The focus in business today is about growth, growth, and growth, right? It's like every quarter we have to perform and we have to show those results. I don't know if that's the true approach to sustainability. And what I worry about when it comes to sustainability is that those two ideas are really at heads with each other. How do you create a long-term sustainable company and still have skyrocketing you know, growth? I just don't understand that. Um, last year where, you know, we had the whole idea of enough on the back of a bus when we were visiting Beja in the Amazon, I've really respected them as I've gotten to know them over the years, just because they take that kind of long-term view and they realize that it's not going to be growth every quarter. There will be quarters where it's not going to be the kind of projections that you had anticipated. And that's perfectly fine. I don't hear that story and I don't see that kind of coverage. There's a lot of financial news coverage that's about a company raising, you know, $10 million or $50 million or whatever that may be and making that news flash. And I'm like, is that really news? Are we just celebrating that they raised lots of money or should we be celebrating something else that they've actually done? I think that's such an important distinction to make. I mean, there's so many brands out there that are VC backed and not to disparage venture capitalism, but the truth is they want scalability. They want as much press as you can possibly get. And that means these companies need to be constantly producing, constantly making noise. And I think it's at odds with the story of sustainability, just to continue to scale, scale, scale without thought for what that impact has on the environment and on communities. I'm curious, what is giving you hope going into this new year? Oh, I think everybody's looking forward to 2021. I mean, one thing that I've deeply missed has been being able to connect with humans, you know, just on a very direct personal level. I think for me, that's what I'm really excited about 2021 is that I just hope that as we get deeper and deeper into this pandemic and the solutions become more and more evident um, that we can all return to some kind of sense of human connection. 2020 pushed people to think about some of these bigger issues. I have noticed it in the conversations that I've had with people within my circle. And I think the conversation of better business is only going to become more and more relevant. It's not going away anytime soon. I do also see a broader movement towards finding things at home that give you joy and really simple things everyday life. We've seen it with our tea company, the kind of feedback that we get from people just sitting and having a cup of tea and slowing down and enjoying the beauty of life. So I think there are positive takeaways of 2020 as well. And I think fundamentally, it's also reminded us that like, you can go on this crazy rat race, like growth projection (laughs) journey, but you're human, you know, and it's, that's not the goal in life. I think we've all been reminded of our mortality and of our purpose and, you know, how fragile the ecosystem is that we live in. So I think it has kind of grounded some people. I hope that it does encourage more people to think about the environment. I think that's one connection I would love to see more of as well as between 
the pandemic and the environment, you know, how we treat the environment and how that comes to kind of sometimes bite us in the butt. Right. I mean, we're going to be in it for many more of these if we don't change our ways. Yes. You know, the optimist in me wants to believe that people will do better and will have used 2020 as a lesson. And then I speak to my husband who says, everyone's going to go wild. It's going to be like the 1920s (laughs) and they're going to forget about it because they're going to be so ready to just get out in the world. And I hope that there's some balance in between. I hope that we remember that as we go forward. One last thing. What does enough mean to you? I have to ask. I think enough for me is just something that's a question we should all be asking ourselves. What's enough for you personally in your life? For me, it's been something that's taken me, you know, 14 years as well. I, at 21 or 22, would have been a very different person, very tenacious and very driven. And I think at 34, I'm much more just content, you know, with the very simple things in life. And so I think it's finding your personal enough. Ask yourself that question. I think what really stands out to me is what she says about financial success. Like, that we read all the time about these companies that are celebrating raising $4 million to launch. And why aren't we talking about companies that are doing well and doing right by the world, but aren't making a shit ton of money? Like, it's okay to not make all the money. And you and I talk about this all the time, Melody, which is that I just think scaling is a dirty word for, like, destroying. I think it's such an important point. I think we need to change how we measure success for companies. It's not just about a rush to the first person who can make the most amount of money. It is a long-term commitment. And it's one of the things that Esha talks about is committing to the people that you work with, whether that's your vendors, whether those are your manufacturers, the people that you're working with on the ground who are impacted by the success of your business. Success doesn't happen overnight. And if it does, then there's probably someone doing something nefarious. I agree. We talk about this a lot, and we've talked to Esha about this, but it is an almost automatic no for us to work with a brand if they say to us, we saw an opening in the market, and we just thought we could make a lot of money and have a quick exit. We're like, bye. I don't want to work on this. It's going to be about all the wrong things, and it's not going to be joyful. It's not about what we care about. And Esha, I think, can spot that a mile away in who's pitching her, you know, how someone is working, if they're cutting corners in a way that's harmful to another human being. And I would just say follow her reporting because you will be a much better and more educated person. I certainly am. Yeah, and I think the old adage, think global, act local, is still so important. We can make the most amount of change in our local communities, and we should think about what is that cause that we can get behind? What are we sort of on the front lines of in our own communities, and how can we be a part of that change? Totally. I mean, Melody, I was inspired by your conversation with Camilla Ruth Marcus, where I finally got the compost. I'm shaming myself because I hadn't been composting properly. And I've been marching it every Sunday over to my local composter. And they were so happy to see me there. They were like, oh, we're also eating escarole right now, which felt weird that they were going through my like food scraps. But also, <laughs> it was really nice. 
you know, I think there's so many different ways to get involved in your local community. And you can start with just going to your local government page to see what's going on. But if you're here in New York, an organization that's near and dear to my heart is New York Cares, which partners with over a thousand different nonprofits across the city. You can sort of choose your own volunteer adventure, if you will, but it gets you connected to the organizations that are on the front lines of this work and gives you an opportunity to really get involved and make a difference. Yeah, I think going deep with an organization or a few organizations in your backyard that you care about is a huge way to make a difference. Mine is, I actually am still so connected to New Orleans and issues of climate change that coalition to restore coastal Louisiana, which they're doing if you want oysters delivered to you wherever you are in the U.S., you can get oysters and then they'll pick them up and put them back into the water because those oysters actually help to regenerate our waterways. So yes, New Yorkers can do it to support New Orleanians and vice versa. And then also just sticking to local communities, know who your local representatives are. You can call them and you will get through to them. But if they're not hearing from us, they're not going to do it. So these are small things that can make a big difference right here in our proverbial backyards. Thank you for listening to Enough. As always, you can find links to Esha, number 29, and the Enough newsletter in our show notes. Keep your eyes peeled for our first edition of the newsletter next week. Enough is a podcast from number 29 and Pineapple Street Studios. It's produced by Natalie Brennan and Sophie Bridges. Pineapple's executive producers are Max Linsky and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Original composition by Hannah Brown. <laughs>